Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, a weekly podcast from the Yiddish Book Center. My name is Sebastian Shulman, and this week I'm on the phone with Dr. Ruth Bahar, a uh, cultural anthropologist at the University of Michigan. Uh, welcome, Dr. Bahar. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Um, so Dr. Bahar is a cultural anthropologist, and uh, her work, uh, as you, you write, um, basically surrounds the concepts of home and homesickness. And you're not just uh, a scholar, you're also a memoirist and a documentary filmmaker with uh, a special interest, um, not just in home, but connected to your own background, a special interest in Jewish life in Cuba. Is that correct? That is totally true. Um, So I was wondering if you could just talk briefly about uh, your family life. Um, I've noticed uh, reading your work that there's all sorts of layers um, cultural and and familiar in in that you, in the home you grew up in. Your parents were from, and your, I think it was your mother was from an Ashkenazi, a Yiddish speaking background, and your father's family was from a, a Ladino speaking Turkish Jewish background. Right. Yes. So I grew up with these two Jewish worlds, um, and um, my parents' marriage was kind of a fusion of the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic traditions. Not always a happy fusion, <laughs> but but it was a fusion, and um, and it was kind of wonderful. Now, when I think about it in retrospect, to really know that there was more than one Jewish world. I mean, I knew that from a very uh, young age, both seeing the different traditions that my parents, you know, brought to the family, and then also I had the extremely good fortune to get to know my four grandparents. Mm. So I spent a lot of time with both uh, sets of grandparents on my mother's side, the Yiddish-speaking side, lots of time with them, with my Baba and Sede on the one hand, and hearing them speak Yiddish, and but also Spanish, of course, which was the family language, and then spending time with my abuelo and my abuela. They even had, as you see, very, very different kinds of mm-hmm. names. And just hearing that beautiful old, old Spanish that they spoke, um, and that got, got, got combined with Cuban Spanish, but it was just so beautiful. So I was really lucky to be introduced to both of these worlds and also the different food traditions of each side of the family and the very, very different histories. It was, of course, one thing to come from a Polish-Russian background and have been part of Eastern European life and quite different with my father's parents who were from Turkey, um, and they were people who had grown up in Islamic tradition, right. essentially. So, so they were just so different from one another, but to think that they were all Jewish somehow was just very, very, very interesting to me, as, particularly as I grew up and started thinking about what I had. Of course, when you're a child, you just think whatever situation you're in is normal. So right. it seems normal to me that, well, one night, you know, we'd go to Passover at my... Ashkenazi family's house, and we'd have the gefilte fish and matzo balls, and then the second night, because it was always the second night, we'd go to the Sephardic side, and there we would have, you know, fish and lemon sauce, and, Mm. you know, walnut leek patties, and completely different cuisine with lots of olive oil. It was just so, and they ate rice, you know, which you couldn't <laughs> eat on the other side of the family. So um, so that was all, you know, it was all pretty, pretty amazing. And I, you know, I think I picked up a lot of cultural knowledge as I was growing up without even realizing it until I was much older. Were mixed marriages like that, you know, intra-Jewish marriages like that, uh, common in the, the Cuban Jewish community? 
Not at all, not at all. When my parents got married in 1956 in Havana, that was extremely unusual, and they joked that it was a kind of intermarriage. Um, in fact, in a, a very big worry on my mother's side of the family, my, my baba, my grandmother, in fact, she said, how are we going to talk to Alberticos? you know, family, they don't speak Yiddish. And ah. it just seemed like almost they weren't quite Jewish enough because they didn't speak Yiddish. Yiddishness was really, you know, Yiddishkeit was the language of being a Jew for, of course, for Jews from Eastern Europe, uh, but not for Sephardic Jews. But my grandmother didn't understand that um, at the time. Of course, many, many years later, you know, we would all laugh about that. But at the time, it was a very, very serious concern and and um and then there were lots of stereotypes about the turks about the turcos as mm -hmm. they were known in cuba on the ashkenazi side there were a lot of stereotypes about the the turks and especially the turkish men whether they would be loyal to their wives and so on there was sort of a stereotype of them being somewhat exotic and wild and temperamental and, and so on so there was a lot of concern and it just so happened that my father kind of fit the stereotype because he is in fact very temperamental <laughs> <laughs> and and what about the interaction with your family as a cuban jewish family moving to the to the united states what was your experience in the american jewish community well, that was extremely interesting, too, because, you know, we arrived in New York in 1962. We left Cuba in 61. We spent a year in Israel, mm. actually, on a kibbutz, because one of my great-uncles had been uh, the founder of, of a kibbutz. And so we went to this kibbutz, which was really kind of funny. We were escaping socialism, and then we went to another socialist system right. <laughs> on the kibbutz. And then we, we got to New York. And, um, you know, my parents didn't know English. There were definitely Cuban immigrants that, that knew quite a lot of English. But my parents really weren't English speakers. They had learned a little bit in school in Cuba, but very, very little. So they really couldn't speak. So we got to New York. And um, my, uh, my mother's older sister had married an American. He was always called the Americano in the family. He was the American. So we kind of had him as sort of an entree into American life. But nevertheless, my parents were always, when people would get to know them, you know, just on a general level in New York, they were always, they were always confusing people, especially my father, who just, um, you know, people would say, would think he was Puerto Rican, um, you know, which really bothered my father because mm. Puerto Ricans and Cubans have very distinct, you know, identities. Mm -hmm. said, no, I'm not Puerto Rican, I'm Cuban. Um, but the idea that he might also be Jewish was just very, very confusing to people at a time before multiculturalism. Now we understand that, you know, there's such a thing as a Jewish Latino right. and so on. But at the time in the 60s, it was still very unusual. And I remember going to, you know, like a temple, young Israel in Queens, New York, and people kind of looking at us and thinking, you know, what are these Puerto Ricans, you know, <laughs> doing here since sort of the, the image of a Latino at the time in New York was, was a Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. They were the community that, you know, that had already settled in Spanish Harlem and so on. And so that was the image of a Latino. And suddenly to see these, these people entering a, a Jewish synagogue who were so clearly la Latino and they're just their they're way of being, their way of speaking and so on just seemed very, very odd. So I remember that kind of sense of not, not fitting into the Jewish community as it was in New York at the time. And eventually, um, actually, a Sephardic temple opened up in Brooklyn that was founded by Cuban Sephardic Jews. Mm. And we would go there periodically for the holidays and so on. But, but interestingly enough, my father didn't like Brooklyn. 
Um, so we might have, you know, settled there in Canarsie where most of his family ended up living, his parents and my aunts and uncles and so on. But um, but he didn't like Brooklyn. Um, so he, he wanted us to be in Queens, which was much more of an Ashkenazi uh, community. And so that was where I grew up. But he would have been so much more comfortable in the Brooklyn context. But um, but he didn't like Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> so so we didn't settle there. But um, but there was the Sephardic temple. And then eventually a Sephardic synagogue opened up in Queens. And there's it's still there. And it's a, uh, led by a wonderful rabbi, Rabbi Murciano, um, from Morocco. And that's the temple where, to this day, my parents feel most mm. comfortable in New York because Rabbi Murciano speaks Ladino and, you know, they can communicate between his Ladino and wow. his Spanish. Yeah. Well, and all these uh, negotiations sound sound fascinating, but I, in, in retrospect, what I'm sure at the time, uh, these negotiations were also, uh, you know, quite quite uh, difficult uh, to to overcome and to to negotiate integrating and also being you know rem- uh, maintaining sort of a, a distinct identity for your family. Yeah, I mean, I think we were always explaining ourselves to people, especially when we stepped out of our community. The interesting thing is how a kind of subculture developed in New York among all these Cuban Jews who found themselves in New York, because the majority after they left Cuba in the 60s actually went to New York because there were just more opportunities Mm -hmm. for work and business. So they went there, but then many of them, including many in my own family, really missed the tropical climate of Cuba. So lots of them left in the 70s and went down to Miami and basically joined all the other you know, Cuban immigrants that were settling there. Um, But nevertheless, enough Cuban Jews stayed in New York that there was a community, and um, they called themselves El Grupo, the group. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and they would get together. We would all get together literally every weekend, and, you know, sometimes we'd go to a Cuban restaurant, sometimes we'd go to a Cuban-Chinese restaurant, which was another interesting, Mm. you know, community that I learned about, you know, just growing up. and and then when it got to be summer, we would go to Jones Beach, and we would all go in a caravan, you know, like five or six cars, you know, all these Cuban-Jewish couples with their children. And some of them, they'd known each other in Cuba, and some they, they met in New York. And so, you know, as long as we were kind of within that bubble of the community, you know, it all felt perfectly normal. Well, of course, we were Jewish and Cuban, you know, now we were in the U.S., and it just seemed totally normal. But when we would step out of the bubble... <laughs> That's when you had to explain yourself to people. Go, wait a minute, you're Cuban and you're Jewish. This would always happen to me. And they'd go, oh, does that mean you have one Cuban parent and one Jewish parent? Wow. I would say, no, no, no. They're both Cuban and they're both Jewish. <laughs> and I'm both of these things. And, and it would just always surprise people. And they, they just couldn't understand, you know, how, how is that possible? What were Jews doing in Cuba? Right, right. Right, and I guess it had to do, with, again, with some sort of odd stereotype of what a Cuban should be right. and what a Jew should be. Like, a Jew in Cuba, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, they're dancing the mambo? What, you know, what's going on? It was almost a contradiction in terms for people who... It was who... a contradiction in terms as if there was a certain way of being Jewish and a certain way of being Cuban, and if you were both, it just kind of really turned those categories upside down and people didn't know what to make of you. <laughs> and this happens to my mother who um, still speaks English with a pretty heavy, you know, accent, mm. accent. And so she's always complaining about this, that all she says, all I have to do is open my mouth and people ask me, where are you from? 
Right. You know, where are you from? And she always gets so upset because she'll say, I've been in the U.S., you know, 50 years, but I just open my mouth and, you know, they realize I'm different. But then they see her Jewish star and they go, wait a minute, but she doesn't sound like a Jew, mm. like something else, you know. And so that's always very, very confusing to people. So being a part of, of this uh, subculture, as you call it, um, you never, it seems you never really lost that connection to, to Cuban culture and your sense of, of Cuban identity. Um, and when you started going back to Cuba uh, in, in your professional work, was there any sort of, uh, what was the reaction from your family? Was there any sort of negative uh, reaction? Oh, yeah, my family was totally against it. Uh -huh. <laughs> they, yeah, they didn't really want me to go at all, at all, at all, at all. Um, they were very scared, like all Cubans who left in the 60s. They were very, very scared. You know, when they left, they were harassed. They were hassled. It was very hard to leave Cuba in the 60s. And people who left at that time were called the worms of the revolution. The gusanos, you know, was the term given to people who left. And so... First of all, there was just tremendous fear about going back and what could happen, you know, if, if you went back, a kind of hysteria about what could happen if, if you went back. And this is something that Cuban Jews of that generation share with all other Cubans of that generation. It's mm. not something particularly Jewish, but they had, that, they had that fear. And so they were kind of afraid for me, like, what are you doing going back? You know, this is the country we left. And... You know, it's a communist country, and we left it for all these very good reasons. Mm -hmm. The first question was, like, why would you even want to go back? Right. What are you looking for there? And my grandmother, um, bless her heart, I mean, this of my four grandparents, my mother's mother was the one that lived the longest to the age of 92. She uh, died in the year 2000. And I would always um, go through Miami to then travel to Havana. Mm -hmm. and I, she was by then retired in Miami, and I would stay with her for a couple of days. And she, she would always say this one line. She would say, in Cuba? What did you lose in Cuba? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, what did you lose that you have to go back and find it? And, um, and so she was very concerned, and she'd see me traveling with all these suitcases because I was always bringing, you know, gifts for people and all kinds of things that I was delivering for various people that, that I knew or sort of knew, knew that I was going to Cuba. You know, you become a kind of messenger, mm. you know, bringing all these packages and letters and all kinds of things. And so she was very, very worried, and and um, and so my parents weren't, you know, happy with it either. And um, but then once I went, it was like, okay, well, you went, now you're done. You went back, you saw Cuba, you mm -hmm. saw where you were born, you saw where you lived, you saw the synagogues, you saw the school you went to. Great, you did all that. Now you're done. You know, why do you need to go again? And so that was what then really started to bother my family. It wasn't okay. Okay, well, all right. Well, we let you go this once. You know, you went, we didn't want you to go, but you went. And then I kept going and over and over and over because, you know, I'm also an anthropologist and we're very repetitive travelers. We're the <laughs> kind of people that go to the same places over and over. You know, unlike tourists who'll have a checklist and go, well, I already went to Bulgaria. Now, you know, now I'll go someplace else. You know. But, but, you know, but anthropologists are weird in that way and that we like to go to the same places over and over, you know, hoping we'll, we'll keep understanding them better. So that really was very strange for my family, very perplexing. I'd already gone, okay, once, twice, but then to keep going over and over and over for years and years, you know, that seemed very, very strange. Um, but the good thing is, is that um, over time as I you know, went ahead and made a movie about the Sephardic Jews of Cuba, mm. and then I wrote my book, An Island Called Home. So I kind of started coming back with these stories about the Jews who were still in Cuba. 
And then my family wasn't quite so upset. It was like, well, okay, you know, you're letting us know that there's still Jewish life in Cuba, and, you know, that's a positive thing, and, you know, we're not going to go back, but, you know, you're going back with this good purpose, so maybe it's okay. Um, so I think, you know, their attitude has changed a bit. My father still isn't very, very happy about it. He usually doesn't even say goodbye to me before, oh. I, before I go, because he's usually kind of upset. But I think a lot of it may be that he's also just kind of still afraid. There's still kind of mm -hmm. a general fear, you know, a distrust perhaps of the Castro government, and, and which is totally understandable given when they left and of the kinds of conditions under which they left back in the 60s. So what does Jewish life look like today in Cuba? Well, to me, it's absolutely fascinating because it's a revitalized community. It's a community that kind of went somewhat underground in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The synagogues never closed, but very few people attended. It was largely the elders that kept, kept things going during that heyday of the revolution. And then in the 90s, the community started to revitalize. Um, the Cuban government changed its policy towards religion, and so people in Cuba in general started rediscovering religion and thinking about spiritual life. And the Jews um, did as well, and so the community started to revitalize. They asked for help um, from the Joint Distribution Committee and mm -hmm. other Jewish organizations, and they began to receive a lot of help and assistance, and so the community started to grow, and lots of people that had not been connected to their Judaism came back, and people that maybe had one Jewish grandparent became interested, and then people who had married uh, persons of Jewish background became interested as well, and they converted and and joined the community. And so, it's, to me, it's a very interesting community because it's a kind of microcosm of Cuba. Mm. You know, it's a tiny community of about a thousand people. It's really hard to have exact numbers, but approximately. Mm -hmm. And um, and you know, you spend time with them, and they are totally Cuban. You know, there's there's nothing to really make them different from other Cubans, but on the other hand, they have this, you know, this Jewish core, um, which also distinguishes them, and um, and I just, you know, have loved the experience of connecting with that community and being able to attend services at the synagogue that was half a block away from where I lived as a child. Wow. Um, so it's just been, for me, a really deeply spiritual experience to, to know that I could reclaim this place that was connected to my own history and to be able to um, spend time with people that are maintaining Judaism in Cuba today. And as I understand it, uh, you're now going to share uh, this this world that you've been a part of with others. Um, next month you'll be leading a, a Cuban art and Judaica tour, is that correct? Yes, yes. It's from May 12th to May 19th and um, it's still possible to, to join um, that group for anybody who might be interested. And um, it's going to be a fascinating week, um, jam-packed with lots of incredible things um, that we'll be doing, visiting the synagogues, meeting with members of the Jewish community, talking to people, talking to people that are religiously active, but also to the secular Jews in Cuba um, as well, and then spending time with artists, mm. uh, close friends with lots of interesting artists and art historians and art curators, and art has been a really booming 
field in Cuba um, in the last couple of years because um, there are um, basically exemptions to the U.S. embargo mm -hmm. against Cuba, and one of them is that you can travel on a religious mission, and another one is that you can actually bring back art because art is considered huh. a, a cultural or, or you know a cultural product, and um, and it's okay to exchange cultural goods despite the embargo. So art has really boomed in Cuba, and um, there's also uh, a national art school, the uh, Superior Art Institute, that um, continually produces amazing young artists. And um, so there's really great work going on, and lots of the artists have built uh, studios or galleries in their own homes. And so the plan is also to visit uh, some of these home studios and actually spend time with the artists as well, who do really incredible work about issues of identity and immigration and diaspora so it connects with jewish identity in really great ways well i ch checked out the itinerary before we got on the phone and i have to say my my travel bug is just is just itching at me i i, I wish that i'd be able to go and how might people find out more information about the trip if they want to join you well, probably the best way is to email me directly, um, and my email is rbehar at umich, U-M-I-C-H, uh, dot E-D-U. That's probably the easiest way, and then I can connect anybody who's interested uh, directly with the travel provider um, who's doing all the logistics. Wonderful, the wonderful. Yeah. And is, is this the, the first sort of group tour you're doing like this? Um, I don't do these that often. Um, I usually actually take undergraduate students mm. uh, from the University of Michigan. I created a semester abroad program and uh, just got back, actually, now at the end of March. We spent three months. So I do that more often, but I like to do these trips now and then and just bring, you know, people that really want to get a close inside look at Cuba. Well, this sounds like an amazing opportunity. And, and one of the things which struck me about the itinerary is you're not just visiting sites, you're connecting with actual people in these communities. And that seems like an, an incredible opportunity and an incredibly rare opportunity that a tourist anywhere wouldn't necessarily have the, the opportunity to do so. So um, I, I encourage all of our listeners to, to get in touch with Dr. Bahar um, and go on this trip if you're able. It, it, it sounds incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I hope, I hope some people will be interested. I, I know it's going to be great. And what you said is exactly right. I really like for people to connect with one another and not just see spaces and then move on because that really doesn't um, allow for a close interaction with the individuals that are, that are living in those spaces and creating culture um, in them, which is so important, and preserving culture as well. So with our last few minutes, I just want to uh, change gears just a little bit. Um, talking about travel, um, I would like to mention your new book project. It's called Traveling Heavy, and this is uh, a memoir about travel itself. And I was wondering if you could just speak for a moment about, about uh, your, your travel experiences and, and how they're integrated into your book. Oh, wow. I'd love to. <laughs> well, my book is just out. I just, just got it, um, so I'm very, very excited about it. And, um, yeah, it's a memoir in between journeys. So I wasn't really trying to write a memoir, but it sort of developed um, in the course of these trips. And the book is basically um, a series of vignettes or stories or chronicles. I'm not even sure what, what to call them. And, um, and each of them shows a different side of me and a place. And so the first part is actually um, family stories and being an immigrant, because 
what I write about in the book is the relationship between being an immigrant and a traveler. Mm. And in my case, I'm both, but I'm trying to understand that relationship between immigrants or people who travel because they have to. They're leaving a place for one reason or another, economic, political, spiritual, religious, whatever it is, and they typically don't have a return ticket. Whereas a traveler is traveling because they want to travel. A traveler just wants to go and be in another place. And so it's such a different way to displace yourself. And in my case, I've been both things. I've been a child immigrant on the one hand, and that, of course, completely uh, changed the course of my life. And then I'm also a traveler and, in fact, a professional traveler. It's what I do um, for a living as an anthropologist, and I've not only spent lots of time in Cuba, um, but also in Spain and Mexico and Israel and Poland and even Argentina. So I'm always traveling, um, but I don't travel light. I travel heavy um, in both senses of the term, in the very literal sense that I overpack. And despite many years of traveling, I'm always the one that's lugging the, you know, the heaviest, most embarrassing suitcase <laughs> of anybody. So I always take too much, and I'm not sure exactly what, what that's due to, but, but I carry a lot. And then also more philosophically, I, I carry a lot. We all carry lots of baggage wherever we go, and, and I always wonder whether we really get to know another place or not, or whether mm. we're all seeing it so much from the, you know, the lens of who we are and our background and everything that we carry around as, as individuals, our personalities and personal histories. So I wonder, well, how, how far in do we ever get to another place? So the book reflects on those issues, and there's a whole section on the kindness of strangers because there have been moments when my family didn't understand me, but strangers understood me so much better. Mm. So there's some stories about that as well, strangers who took me in in Mexico and Spain who had nothing to do with me, no connection, but they just gave me so much love um, at times when I needed it. And there's even a story about the town in Mexico where I lived, and um, and it's called A Gift from the Women of Mesquitique because those women, I lived there when I was in my mid-20s, and I was just married, and they were very worried. You know, we were there for three years, the women were very worried that I wasn't getting pregnant. And um, they were just very, very concerned about that. Of course. They wanted to take me to doctors and find out what was going on. Right, right. (laughs) The idea that I might want to hold off on having a child just didn't make sense to them in this rural village. And, um, And they made me worry about it so much that literally about two months after I got back from those three years in Mexico, I became pregnant. Oh. And and thanks to them, I have a son. Um, so so I really I really you know um, I'm very grateful that, that those women nagged me as much as they did. I'm not sure I would have become a mother. Um, and so that's another you know part of my identity and how traveling is is really important in that um, if you travel for long periods of time as as we do as anthropologists, those experiences can totally change your life just the way immigrating to another country can. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's something quintessential about traveling that is Jewish or something about being Jewish that is intimately connected with travel, being a, a, a diasporic people uh, migrating from land to land? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, in, in some ways all Jews are kind of, you know, born anthropologists and 
I don't think it's an accident that there's an interesting Jewish presence within anthropology and that, you know, the founding father of American anthropology was a German Jew named Franz Boas. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, I think our, our whole connection with kind of the Jewishness of anthropology is is very, very interesting. It's a discipline based on the concept of displacement and learning about yourself and others by being elsewhere. So I think that's a very, very interesting conjuncture. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that there is maybe a kind of Jewish, you know, predisposition towards understanding travel and diaspora. I know that every time I pack a suitcase, I think about the fact, you know, that I'm Jewish and that this is something that you know, Jews have done, you know, um, since biblical times, you know, we were probably, have always been traveling heavy, <laughs> you know, that that's kind of part of the Jewish condition. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so I definitely connect the two. And also being Cuban, for me, the Cuban part of it is also interesting because since 1959, since the Cuban Revolution, there's been such an enormous diaspora of Cubans, and you'll find Cubans all over the world as well, just as you're likely to find Jewish people all over the world were so dispersed. And interestingly, so are Cubans. You know, you what you can find a Cuban in New Zealand and in Alaska. You'll find Cubans. It's kind of interesting. So for me, these two identities really come together, and, and they're part of what makes di- diaspora, I guess, such a deep concept for me, such mm. a deep-lived concept. Well, well, this is just fascinating, and, and I'm sure we could talk for hours, but unfortunately we, we, <laughs> we could. <laughs> unfortunately, we don't have that luxury, but we, we look forward to speaking to you after uh, your, your next upcoming travels after this, uh, this trip to Cuba. Um, and I'd just like to, to reiterate, if anyone's interested in joining Dr. Bahar, you can get in touch with her. Uh, one more time, uh, your email, please, if people would like to get in touch. Yeah, it's very simple. It's just rbehar, R-B-E-H-A-R, at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U, arbahar at umich dot E-D-U. And if they don't, uh, can't find me that way, they can always go to my website, just ruthbahar.com, and there's a link on the website as well that will allow people to contact me if they'd like to, um, either about the trip or my book or, um, or about doing any kind of public speaking at, at their Jewish community centers or synagogues. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit yiddishbookcenter.org audio. Our producer is Agnieszka Ilvitska. I'm Sebastian Schulman. Seid mir gesinnt in stark. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon. <laughs>